If you're having a seat, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, you know, uh, periodically, I just, I have to, I have to get off of um, all forms of media. You know, this summer, I just, I deleted every um, news app on my phone because uh, it just, it just makes me crazy, right? It's the, uh, the, the political rhetoric in particular, you know, it's, it's not just nasty, but it's going nowhere, right? It just, it just makes me nuts sometimes because I'm consuming all this news because I'm kind of a news junkie, you know, but I cons- find myself consuming all of this news, and most of it bad, uh, about which I can do nothing, right? And so I feel really frustrated and I feel powerless and I don't like feeling powerless because, the, you know, the players change, but otherwise nothing else changes, and I don't, I don't like that sensation. And, and then I read Psalm 2. Okay. Psalm 2 is, is really good news. Psalm 2 reminds me that the Son of God will rule and reign over all of the kingdoms of the earth forever. In other words, uh, Jesus will reign is the answer to all of the bad headlines. Right? And so I, I like to go back there periodically. I've actually memorized Psalm 2 because it's so refreshing. It's such a wonderful reminder of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords ruling and reigning. But not only that, it reminds me how I should live today. Today, I should live in joyful submission to that King. That's where I'm going to find life for myself in this day. So I want us to read Psalm chapter 2 together and experience the refreshment of this reminder. Hey, Psalm chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son so that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Uh, Psalm 2 actually has four movements. Uh, Four movements. The first movement, it opens with uh, earth's rebels revolting against God, and then God the Father speaks, and then God's Son, future ruler, will speak, and then finally, the psalmist will give an exhortation to the people who have all listened to this. And the psalm itself is actually, it's a royal psalm, specifically, uh, if we can put it in setting, it's, it's what's called a coronation psalm. So every time Israel installed a new king, they would read or recite this psalm. Probably it was done in a sense uh, antiphonally. In other words, there were four individuals or four groups who would each take a part and they would sing the parts together as they celebrated the enthronement of a new Israelite king. Now, in that sense, it's, it's a time of celebration, right? But it's also opening up. It begins, in a sense, with a time of crisis. So Israel's celebrating that they're getting a new king, but they're also experiencing a moment of crisis because every time one king passed away and a new king took the throne, the nations around who had been subjugated would often rise up in rebellion 
against the Israelite king. And so the people are celebrating that they're getting a new king, but they're also a bit fearful that they might have to go to war. In fact, they probably will have to go to war to defend the sovereign territory of the king. And, you know, in some respects, that's a little difficult for us to to relate to, right? Because our, our elections are so peaceful. Sort of, right? I mean, at least Canada and Mexico don't attack every time we put a new president in place. We don't have to experience that. But what's happening here is these nations around are saying, no, we won't give in. We won't submit to God and we won't submit to God's king because we hate God and we hate God's king. Psalm 2 in a sense, really helps us understand not only our own headlines, but I would say it also helps us understand our own hearts. There's something in us when God says submit, we, we just we say no, no. Right? That started from the very beginning of human history. The fundamental temptation that, that Eve gave into and Adam followed was this. You can be like God. See, God has put this hierarchy in place to, to take from you so life won't be good. You don't have to be under God. You can be your own God. The reason he's withholding this, uh, this fruit of the tree from you is because he doesn't want you to have what you really were designed to have, which is independence and freedom from him. And so Eve took the bait. Adam followed after her, believing that they could live independently from God and they could find life independently from God. And so there's something inside of us that we just, we are born saying no. Or we're, we are born resisting. I remember a few years ago, I had a, a young friend and he and his wife were about to have their first baby. And so we, he, he was asking me some like, theological parenting questions, right? The kind of questions that uh, a new dad asks before he actually has a child, right? Um, this, it's not practical at all. It's before sleep deprivation has kicked in, right? And you're, and you're dying. So it was all theoretical. And he said to me, he said, tell me, Brian, when do, you see the, when do you see the sin nature beginning to emerge in a child? And, and I said, mm, immediately, uh, you know, uh, okay. Almost immediately, he said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, you're going to be changing her diaper. And she's going to arch her back, and she's going to scream, and she's going to move and yell, and she is saying to you, no. Now, the irony is, you're trying to do something good for her, and she's fighting against it. See where I'm going with this? This applies not just to the kings of the earth. This applies to, to us. It's not just the headlines in the paper, it's the human heart. God's trying to do something good for us. He's saying, your life is found in following me. Your life is found in giving in to me. And we say, no, we arch our back and we scream and we yell when God's trying to show us life. And so the psalm opens up, describing in a sense the basic human condition. The nations are in rebellion against God. Their hearts are hard against God. And so now God, the Father, will speak. Read with me verse 4. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, Scene shifts now from earth to heaven. God's watching over all of his creation. And he's not shocked. He's not startled. He's not frightened. Nothing is going on here that really unnerves God at all. But he is really angry. 
Right? He's really angry. And I don't know about you, but um, normally in my quiet times, I don't, I don't intentionally focus on the anger of God. Right? I, I like to take me to the passages that talk about his grace and his mercy and his kindness. Right? That's where I really want to be. But Psalm 2 describes God very vividly uh, in, in angry terms. He's furious. Now, that being said, remember when the Bible describes kind of the fundamental character of God, it doesn't say angry, angry, angry is the Lord God of hosts, right? That's, that's not true. It says holy, holy, holy. Perfect in all of his attributes. All of his attributes. God being completely, utterly different and apart from us, particularly in his absolute perfection of morality, he is holy. Consequently, when he sees sin, he does become angry. Because a perfectly holy and just God can't look at sin and say, let me just overlook it. It's an offense to him personally, and so God is angry. Not as a fundamental part of his character. His character is holy, and when he receives sin, he must respond in anger. Which gets us at the heart of the gospel. All of us are born in rebellion. God sees our sin, and what's his response? Well, he's angry. And because of his perfect, holy character, he must punish sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He must punish it. And the wages of sin is death. The punishment that's appropriate for rebellion against God is death. God must punish it. But what the gospel tells us is at the cross of Christ, we have the perfect intersection of both the holiness of God and his grace and mercy and love because he does punish sin, but he punishes our sin in Jesus. He transfers the debt of our sin to Jesus. And in his perfect holiness, he pours out all of his wrath and all of his anger against all of sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our substitute. So God can be both holy and yet he can be loving and reconcile us to himself because he does love us and he wants to restore us to relationship. But we have a debt of sin. We have a barrier that we can't pay with anything other than our lives. So he substitutes the life of his son, Jesus, justice, so that he can reconcile to us through his love. That's the very essence of the gospel. And I don't want you to leave here without, uh, without seeing that fundamental message. When we see God reacting in anger against sin, we shouldn't be surprised because he's holy. But we shouldn't also forget that because he's loving and merciful and gracious and kind, he punished our sin in Jesus. And, and what can we do? All that we can do is reach out to God and say, God, thank you. I believe. I accept I don't want to pay for it myself. I can't pay for it myself. I can't be good enough to overcome that debt of sin. And so I simply reach out and say, thank you. I receive your payment on my behalf. That's the debt that Jesus has paid. That's the answer to the headlines we see. It's the answer to the problem in the human heart. But it helps us understand and make sense of what's happening, not just in the world, but also in ourselves. Now, what's interesting about this particular psalm is that the early church quoted it all the time. Psalm chapter 2 was a part of their early teaching and it was part of their worship because they were suffering. They were looking at the headlines and they were seeing all kinds of bad news and they felt completely powerless. (laughs) Not not unlike how we feel today. And so Psalm 2 was a part of their vocabulary constantly. Now this is a bust of Nero. Nero was... Uh, one of the emperors that persecuted the church, according to church history, he's the one who had uh, Paul put to death. And he had power over all of his peoples, but particularly had power over the church. The church could do nothing. They were imprisoned. 
They lost their property. They lost their health. They were separated from families. Some of them lost their lives, and there was nothing that they could do about it. And so they reminded themselves of Psalm chapter 2. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, will rule and he will reign forever. And he will crush all who are in rebellion. All those nations that rebel against God will be destroyed. And they reminded themselves by reading Psalm chapter 2. And so where do we find the uh, Roman Empire now? it's, It's in museums and it's in rubble along the roadside scattered throughout Europe and Asia Minor. And that's a fact of human history. Another interesting uh, story is recorded in Isaiah chapter 37. In that time period, the Assyrian kingdom was the most powerful kingdom, and they had swept into the northern part of Israel. Remember, this is when the kingdoms had separated, so the ten tribes in the north were wiped out by the Assyrians. And uh, King Sennacherib, he took the peoples of, of Israel and he scattered them all throughout his empire. And then he continued marching. He came all the way to the southern kingdom, to the gates of the capital in Jerusalem. And he told them, surrender, give in. Get your life, but I'm going to scatter you everywhere. And the people were living in fear. And then one night, angel of the Lord came in, and he killed 185,000 of Sennacherib's warriors. Just like that. Sennacherib woke up in the morning. 185,000 of his soldiers were dead. He said, I better leave. I better get out of here. So he went back home to the capital city, Nineveh, and he was assassinated. It's a great story. <laughs> I, love, I love those stories. Or, or Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. Remember, he was given a vision. Doesn't really understand the vision. Calls Daniel in, and Daniel says, well, here's the vision. You're a really great king, but you're not that great. And you better stop thinking that you're that great, or God's gonna, he's going to strike you down. So Nebuchadnezzar kind of takes the warning. The warning lasts for about a year, right? That's kind of how warnings work in our lives. He lasts for a year, and then he kind of forgets. And he's out on his terrace of his palace, and he's looking out at all the things that he's built and his kingdom. And he goes, yeah, you know, I really, I really am something. Right? I really, I, I'm, I'm the one who wiped out the Assyrian kingdom, and now uh, the Babylonian kingdom is all mine. And look at these palaces and these gardens. Seven wonders of the world are surrounding me. I'm really, really something. And God said, no, not really. Right? Strikes him down. And he goes mad. He gets down on all fours. He crawls into a field and he eats grass. His hair grows long. His fingernails are like uh, you know Howard Hughes. He's just, he's just a nasty, groveling human being until he finally looks up to heaven and says, I give. I give. Or in the book of Acts, Herod Agrippa went to Caesarea to address the people of Tyre and Sidon. There's a beautiful amphitheater there that looks out onto the Mediterranean Sea. The people of Tyre and Sidon had come down. They were groveling because Herod Agrippa supplied them with grain and food. So they're groveling before Herod Agrippa, and he's sitting there on the rostrum on his uh, little uh, throne in that area, and the sun is shining off the Mediterranean. He's got on his gold leaf robes, and it hits his robes, and he's kind of shiny all there, and he begins to speak. And remember the people say, oh, the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. And in that moment, God sends worms, and they eat him, and he dies. And I remember when my son was little, he's like, that's a great story, Dad. <laughs> that's a great story, church. That's the consistent testimony of human history. Maybe not immediately, but eventually, God will rule and reign over all earthly kingdoms. Rebellion will not be allowed. I want you to hold your place in Psalm 2 and turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Nebuchadnezzar was given another vision. 
here in Daniel chapter 2, and it was of a, of a statue that had multiple parts to it. And the different parts of the statue were made of different elements. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of his dream. He says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And the statue itself on the whole represented the kingdoms of the earth. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck struck the statue became a great mountain and it filled the entire earth. Look in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel himself was given another vision. Daniel 7, verse 13. He wrote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is where all of history is moving. And so the psalmist reminds us, how do you find life, and how do you find blessing and enjoyment in every day? It's in living in submission to God's king. And so God speaks and he speaks out a warning and he laughs at them. He says, your position is utterly ridiculous. You cannot stand. And then the son speaks. Turn back with me to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. The son is now speaking. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He, that is the father, said to me, the son... You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, uh, I want to know, do we have any, any folks in here who are not firstborn in your family? Anybody who's not firstborn? Right, okay. So most, seems like most probably have some firstborns. Um, I don't, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because uh, I don't care. Uh, I was not firstborn, right? I was secondborn. There were just two of us, which means I was the baby. I was always the baby. And uh, by four years. So when my parents would leave and go out somewhere, my sister being four years older than me, my parents would always say, we're leaving your sister in charge. Your sister's in charge, right? And my sister would remind me, I'm in charge. Mom and dad left me in charge. And, you know, she would rule over me, right? She would lord it over me. And it abs- just made me absolutely crazy. I remember going to my room and just, like, screaming into a pillow. I was so mad, right? And sometimes I'd scream in her face, and I would rebel in my heart and in my mind and sometimes in my words and my actions. And she'd say, I'm in charge. Mom and dad left me in charge. You better give in to me or else, right? Because when they come back, I'm going to tell them that you didn't submit to me. And it was just this awesome, wonderful day when I was finally 
old enough and I could say, you're not the boss of me, right? You're not in charge of me, right? And I'm still getting over that, obviously, right? It's just, oh man, you know, <laughs> made me crazy. And all, all the majority of you who write are not firstborns, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And, and I, re, I remind my, my wife's firstborn, my oldest son, I'm like, you have no idea what it's like for the rest of us having to live under your tyrannical authority. Right? You just don't know. Well, well, Psalm chapter 2, that's kind of what's going on a little bit, right? God the Father says to all of the earth, his other children, my son's in charge. And then the son speaks and he says, I need to remind you, I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Now, what's interesting is these words that the son speaks were actually first spoken to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David was given a promise. God spoke these words to David. He said, you are my son. You're my son. Today I have begotten you. You're my son. There's something special and unique about you. Remember, this is a, it's a coronation psalm. And so every time a new king would be installed, first David was given these words, and then Solomon was given these same words, and then Rehoboam was given these same words, and then every king that came in the Davidic line afterwards was given these words at coronation. He was reminded, you are my son. And so a coronation would have looked something like this. We have one record of it here in 2 Kings chapter 11. It says, then Jehoiada the priest brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony and they made him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and they said, long live the king. Long live the king. They notice a few things. King would have multiple sons because normally he had multiple wives, but only one could be king. And so the crown was placed on one particular heir, one, one prince. And he was declared Son of God. He was given a, a, a copy of the law of Moses, and he pledged his loyalty to rule under the authority of God according to the law. He was also given a copy of the Davidic promises. These are God's promises to you, that an heir will sit on your throne, and that someday that heir will rule and reign over all of the nations. He was given those promises by God. He received the law, so he made promises to God and to the people to rule a certain way. And then the priest would pour oil on his head, and he would be the Messiah. Literally, he would be the anointed one. And so on that day, three specific things, in a sense, happened. First, There was a unique relationship established. There was a unique relationship established. Read with me again, verse 7. Again, this is the Son of God, or that next king in line speaking. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember, God viewed his relationship with Israel as a family. He was a father, and they were all of his children, his sons and his daughters. But there was one son that would be elevated to this responsibility of firstborn. He might not even be chronologically the firstborn, but he would be declared the one who had the rights and privileges and responsibilities of being firstborn or in this unique relationship with God. And when we hear the the phrase son of God, we usually jump immediately right to our New Testament theology. and We think, okay, God-man. We think a hypostatic union, two natures, fully God and fully man. But when the Jew heard the title son of God, he just heard the title ruler, right? Or heir. The one who has a special and unique relationship with God the Father. 2 Samuel 7 begins like this. It says, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. I have many sons and daughters, but this one will be declared 
my firstborn. Second, he was given an extensive inheritance. Verse 8. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. In other words, the, the Jewish king ultimately was, was pictured as not just ruling over Israel, but from Jerusalem over Israel and ultimately over all of the nations under the authority of God. So as it says in Psalm 89, He will cry to me, you're my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn. That is, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now third, he was given absolute authority over his rule, over his realm. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We have some inscriptions from Egypt that describe this part of the ceremony where the, the enemies of the king would be inscribed on clay pots and then he would take those clay pots in front of the altars of his gods and he would shatter them. Right? That's, that's what's being pictured here. You will have that kind of absolute authority over all of the nations of the earth and you will live in a unique and special relationship with me. Now, clearly... The ideal was never realized. In fact, if you read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, every king failed. Right? There were some kings who were better than others, but there were no good kings in the northern kingdom, and they weren't even part of the Davidic line. And in the southern kingdom, you have three or four decent kings, but all of them ultimately failed. And so Israel was constantly anticipating or looking for this son of God who would lead them into all of the blessings of God. Well, their kings got so bad, not just in Israel, they were taken into exile, but also in Judah in the southern kingdom, their kings were so bad and lived in rebellion against God. But Judah was also taken away into exile. But while they were in exile, God made them a promise. And he put the promise in terms of a brand new covenant. He said, I'm going to restore you to the land. I'm going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to restore your authority. I'm also going to do that through my son. I will still send a son who will lead you into all of these blessings. Now, in the New Testament, we just uh, studied Matthew last year, right? And we chose Matthew in particular because Matthew pictures Jesus as the Son of God. And he has declared the Son of God multiple times during his earthly ministry. Remember first, at his baptism, the Spirit descends and a voice calls out of heaven. And what does that voice from heaven say? You are my Son. Psalm chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, we jump immediately to Pauline theology and we think God-man, right? Hypostatic union. But in that moment, God is saying to all who would listen, this is the king, this is the ruler, this is the one. Submit to him, listen to him, follow him. Because all blessing is found in him. It also happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter says, this is amazing, right? You got Elijah, you got Moses, you got Jesus. Let's set up three tabernacles and just have, have a wonderful party and stay here Moses and Elijah leave, everything just disappears. Voice comes out, out of heaven and says what? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Just one, only one. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that also at the resurrection, he was declared the son of God with power. And if you move all the way to the book of Revelation, if you've done that recently, and read about the final battle, the sun shows up and it's kind of an anticlimactic battle, Right? All the nations gather at this valley, Armageddon, underneath the hill of Megiddo, and they're going to fight against each other, and then they decide, no, 
Really, we hate God more than we hate one another. Let's join forces and and fight against God, and Jesus shows up, and then the battle's over. It's just like that, right? It's really anticlimactic. Because the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, appears. And he destroys all enemies. that's, That's where all of history is moving. And when you live in that flow of history, life is good. That's why the psalm is written. It's written to remind us, this is what God is doing. This is where God is moving things. So how should you live today? Well, live today in submission to that king. And so what happens here in the final movement is the psalmist issues a warning. He reminds the people of who is the king and that they should submit. Let me read it to you. It goes like this. So now you kings, do what is wise. You rulers of the earth, submit to correction. Serve the Lord in fear, repent in terror. Kiss the Son, otherwise he will be angry and you will die because of your behavior. When his anger quickly ignites, how blessed are all those who take shelter in him. I I like that translation better because it it, it draws out the point of the psalm, which is be wise. Just, Just be wise. Job had a moment like this. He's frustrated with God and he's having a difficult time submitting to God's will in his life. And he's arguing with God and then God reveals his glory. He doesn't explain Job's circumstances. He just reveals his glory. And Job says, okay, I get it. I heard about you before, but now I see you. And I give in. I submit, right? This applies not not just to nations, but it applies to individuals. It applies to every single one of us. Life is found when we give in and we submit to God. Adam and Eve said no. Says, no, we, we won't give in, right? We, we want to be free from God's constraints. And so what they did, actually, is they surrendered their submission to a benevolent, kind father, and instead they submitted to Satan and to sin and to death. Right? They exchanged life, which was found under God, for death, which is found outside of God. Because really, no human being can live independently from God. We are created by God. We're what's described as contingent beings. We can't actually experience life apart from God. So when they moved out of God's authority, they experienced death. I love this quote by Phillips Brooks. He said this, No man in this world attains to freedom from any slavery except by entrance into some higher servitude. There's no such thing as an entirely free man conceivable. That's good, isn't it? Or the only freedom that we experience is when we're under the benevolence and kindness of a sovereign father. So how do we apply this? Derek Kidner was one of the uh, great Old Testament commentators of the previous generation. And he kind of summed up Psalm 2 like this. He said, there's no refuge from him, there's only refuge in him. There's no refuge from him, only in him. So I think that a good way for us to close our, our study of Psalm 2 is just to take a few moments silently before the Lord and ask the Lord to search our hearts. Is there an area of our lives, maybe it's, maybe it's big or, or maybe it's small, where we have said, no, I'm not going to give in. And what we need is we need the Spirit to speak wisdom in our hearts so that we realize, no, you know, life, there's only life. When we, when we go God's way, and we need to give in. And whether it's an area that's really large or an area that's just kind of small, that we're beginning to say no, we need to turn that corner and just say yes. Okay, so let's take a few moments before the Lord. Um, ask God's Spirit to speak to each of us particularly. 
areas of our heart where we're, maybe we're not submitting, we're not giving in. We need to, need to find life in him. Yeah, I'll give you a few moments quietly and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there is a, a work that needs to happen in us that only your spirit can do. And maybe this morning we walked in here with hearts that are really soft already or maybe uh, hearts that are kind of hard and um, maybe we need your spirit to just continually be speaking these words throughout the week. We would drop our, our defenses and listen and grow in wisdom and just find the joy of, of living under you and under your perfect authority in our lives. I pray, Father, that as we do that, we, we go through the same circumstances people around us go through, that they would see us living under your authority and, and embracing your rule in our lives, and, and they would be drawn to your son, Jesus. As they're living apart from you, they would see that oh, there's just no life out there, and they'd be, they'd be just so winsomely drawn to the lives that we have, which circumstantially are no different. We have the same struggles and frustrations, but we have joy and peace because we trust that your son will rule and reign forever and ever and set all things right. And so today, we can be joyfully submissive. Father, I pray that we would enjoy that in our own lives and that we would be beautiful, uh, bright lights to our friends and family around us. And Father, I pray that as you send us out, uh, we would live that way and we would continue to listen to the voice of your spirit speak. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week living in submission to the King.